Hello, and welcome to another episode of Right Care at Baptist. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. And I'm Amanda Comer, a nurse practitioner and the system director for advanced practice providers. And today we're honored to have back on the show, Dr. R.A. Shikowski, the a cardiologist and the director of the Heart Institute. Uh, Ari, welcome back to the program. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. Good to be here. So today we wanted to do a, a deep dive into chest pain, uh, given that the AHA and ACC updated their recommendations. Um, and also we've you know, recently introduced kind of the high sensitivity troponin uh, workflow uh, into our our clinical practice. So, you know, when we're talking about chest pain, let's just start at the very basics. Can you tell us what we mean when we say chest pain? Sure. Well, you know, chest pain is different uh, when you present in the ambulatory uh, area, and then it's different when 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 you present in the emergency room. Let's focus on the emergency room because we don't have that much time to cover all the topics. But chest pain is generally anything that causes a discomfort in the uh, thoracic area, chest discomfort. Um, and uh, when one evaluates somebody for chest pain, one has to consider um, the, the quality of the pain, uh, the um, uh, severity of the pain, the nature of the pain, the duration of the pain, uh, when the pain started, how long the pain lasted. There are multiple different components of the uh, description uh, that uh, a provider needs to uh, uh, bring out from the patient who's presenting with symptoms. Um, so chest pain, uh, it, it, you know, it could mean anything from tightness to pressure to a discomfort in the chest. It could be your shoulders, your arms, your neck, your back, your upper abdomen, your jaw. And in chest pain that's caused by obstructive coronary disease, shortness of breath and fatigue can also be considered an equivalent for chest pain. And in some older individuals, even mental status changes can be considered their presentation for chest pain that could potentially be originating from the, from the coronaries. The other thing to know about chest pain um, is, is the age of the person that's presenting. If you look at the top 10 causes of chest pain in individuals who are 44 years old or younger, none of those are due to obstructive coronary artery disease. Um, and then when you look at the causes of chest pain in individuals who are 45 or older or 65 or older, obstructive coronary artery disease is still not the number one cause of their chest pain. Uh, roughly about 10 to 13% of chest pain presentations to the emergency room are actually acute coronary syndromes. The rest of those chest pain presentations are something else. When somebody presents to the emergency room with chest pain, what's important to immediately elucidate is whether or not that chest pain is caused by one of the top six um, etiologies that can lead to mortality or death or early death or sudden death. And that I think is the most important thing that every emergency room physician or every emergency room uh, acute uh, advanced practice provider 
needs to figure out when that patient presents, are we dealing with a life-threatening cause of chest pain um, or not? Um, and, 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 then, and then you go through the process and there's a process uh, that one should follow once they've um, created their differential. And uh, just, just so that the listeners know, can, can we list off those top six diagnoses? Sure, sure. So number one is myocardial infarction. Number two would be uh, acute aortic dissection. Number three would be pneumothorax. Four would be pneumonia. Uh, five would be um, esophageal rupture. And um, the, the last one would be um, um, a pericardial tamponade. Uh, oh, and, and, and pulmonary embolism. So there's actually seven. But sometimes pericardial tamponade can present with chest pain because there's an associated myocarditis. So those are the ones that you really have to immediately uh, rule out. And in many of those, um, time is of the essence um, in, in making a diagnosis and, and initiating the appropriate uh, uh, treatment and correction of the problem. So in the ER, oftentimes you'll see the chief complaint is chest pain. And when you walk in to see the patient, you're not off, you know, it, it may be pleuritic in nature, it may be cardiac in nature, but really going through to differentiate what that diagnosis may be. Are there other symptoms? I, I know you mentioned fatigue, shortness of breath. Are there other symptoms to be aware that may be cardiac in nature? Sure. So, so everyone that comes in with chest pain should automatically get an EKG. I mean, that, that's the first thing we do. And, and uh, I believe at all of our facilities, our goal is to get an EKG within 10 minutes. Um, immediate um, hemodynamic assessment and uh, blood pressure should be checked in both arms. And if there's a major discrepancy in both arms, then one ought to consider um, aortic dissection. The presentation is sometimes very helpful and the history is helpful. So when you're going down the list of the most um, critical um, um, diagnoses that we have to uh, uh, immediately um, 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 uncover, and those are those those life-threatening ones. Um, if somebody describes, for let's say we're talking about myocardial infarction, um, usually the the pain is more of a pressure, a squeezing. Um, um, it's been building up over a period of time. It may be radiating to the arms to the jaw, um, an individual could be nauseous, diaphoretic, um, and, but sometimes the other um, causes of chest pain can, can mimic those symptoms as well. A pleuritic pain is very commonly seen in either musculoskeletal causes of chest pain, but if we're talking about the more life-threatening causes of chest pain, pulmonary embolism. Um, and that's and, and, and associated with that, somebody may be hypoxic, somebody may be tachycardic, but that's usually seen in more significant pulmonary emboli, like a saddle pulmonary embolism, um, which is, again, more critical than, than a segmental pulmonary embolism. Uh, if somebody presents with a description of, um, I suddenly felt a sharp tearing pain and it radiated from my chest down to my abdomen, that might make you think about an aortic dissection. 
if someone comes in with um, fever, cough, um, then you may think more about pneumonia. Thankfully, we have diagnostic studies that can um, sort of direct us on the right course, uh, and if done rapidly, they're very helpful. So an EKG is always very helpful for uh, acute myocardial infarction, specifically ST elevation myocardial infarction. We'll get to in a moment the high-sensitive troponins and how those have uh, helped us uh, make early diagnoses of, uh, of acute coronary syndromes. Uh, chest x-ray is very helpful early on. I mean, you can almost immediately rule out pneumothorax, pneumonia, um, and you can even see a large uh, aortic aneurysm and possibly a type A aortic dissection on the chest x-ray. Um, we are now uh, very adept at getting um, uh, rapid uh, CT uh, angiograms in the, uh, in the um, uh, emergency room, as well as our ability to get a rapid D-dimer. Those are very helpful, and those can immediately rule out all of the major uh, life-threatening causes of chest pain, except for myocardial infarction. So oftentimes when I'm talking to patients who, you know, obviously they come to the emergency room, they're, they're, they're terrified that they're experiencing a life-threatening problem because a costochondritis or musculoskeletal pain can be very scary. And, you know, I say this to my patients all the time, you know, we unfortunately are taught that as soon as you have chest pain, you run to the emergency room, but nobody really teaches us how to differentiate the different types of chest pain. So I spend a lot of time explaining to people that, you know, that they don't need to be fearful of the pain that they have once I have in my hands the CT angiogram and the troponins and the EKG because I've basically ruled out the life-threatening causes of chest pain with those, with those uh, tests. And, and, and that's something that we can do immediately in the emergency room. What we can't definitively do in the emergency room is whether or not somebody has um, um, an acute coronary syndrome or an unstable situation that hasn't quite presented itself yet. And that's something we'll get to in just a second. Okay, I think those, so we, we kind of went through, you know, what is the workup it, that is needed for somebody that presents with chest pain? What, what sort of imaging tests? Uh, you mentioned um, chest x-ray, EKG, CT angiogram. Um, what about, is there anything, before we, we kind of get into the high sensitivity troponins, is there anything else on the physical exam that would, you know, that you look for to uh, lead you in one direction versus another, or at least things you, you want there. If you're looking to make sure somebody does not have a myocardial infarction, is there something that you want um, to make sure that the patient doesn't have? Yeah, well, for, for, for again, myocardial infarctions, um, um, hypotension is always a concerning uh, finding. Uh, tachycardia may or may not be helpful. Arrhythmias on presentation may or may not be helpful. Somebody's having non-sustained VT or frequent ventricular ectopy that might lead you in the direction of a cardiac issue, um, and then moving uh, and then dyspnea to kipnea. Again, many of those chest pain presentations uh, have that pre have, have those sin symptoms and signs. So then moving on to the physical exam, um, listening to the lungs, you may hear rowels, uh, which might indicate that there's some pulmonary edema. 
Um, pulmonary embolism doesn't really give you much uh, in terms of your lung evaluation. With a pneumothorax, you may hear no breath sounds on one side. Um, with an esophageal tear, very difficult uh, to really get much from the physical exam on that. With an aortic dissection, um, a major differentiation in the uh, blood pressure uh, in, in the left and right arm and between the lower extremities and the upper extremities. That's something that we don't typically do. Um, when we listen to the heart, uh, you may hear an S3 gallop indicating that you are in, in, in shock. Uh, you may see jugular venous distension. Um, but these are, you know, these are more advanced findings that you that you'll see on your on your exam. Um, it's often difficult um, with a myocardial infarction, um, pulmonary embolism um, to really uh, make a diagnosis based on the examination. You need some additional studies to really help uh, guide you. Uh, the other thing that that's important to note, um, you know, the majority of patients that come to the emergency room don't have life-threatening chest pain, you know, they, they, and, and, and they're low risk. And, and I think that, you know, something that we, we need to do a little bit better, and, and it's also been um, um, uh, highlighted in the new guidelines, is um, it, we don't know, we, we want to eliminate the idea of atypical and typical chest pain. It's now non-cardiac or possibly cardiac or cardiac. And, and if something's been deemed non-cardiac, then there is no indication for that individual to undergo any risk stratifying studies, such as a stress test. So, you know, if, if as I mentioned earlier, the majority of patients that are less than 44 years old, the top 10 presentations to the emergency room are not even obstructive coronary disease, uh, and they have a low risk assessment um, their troponins are negative, the EKG is normal, this is clearly anxiety or musculoskeletal. It is not recommended that they be referred out for a risk stratifying study. Um, unfortunately, what that leads to is we, we, we see a lot of patients that, that, are, that are referred to us uh, through our low-risk chest pain protocol. There's a, um, um, a, a protocol that we've developed uh, between Baptist and Stern, and we'll see these low-risk patients who get discharged, but many of them in their 20s, uh, some of them are, uh, you know, having active pain because their chest hurts when they breathe, and unfortunately, uh, we don't see the patients. We read the studies, and when we read these 30-year-old, 20-year-old uh, exercise treadmill tests, and we read patient had chest pain or patient couldn't perform more than five minutes because they're obese and out of shape, we end up having to see that patient, unfortunately, unnecessarily, to confirm that everything is okay, more for a medical legal issue. And they probably should have never had that test to begin with. So something that we don't do well in our emergency rooms is we don't tell the patients who are absolutely low risk that their risk of a major adverse cardiovascular event over the next six weeks, et cetera, over their lifetime is extremely unlikely, and they do not need any additional testing, and they should probably just follow up with their primary care physician. Okay, I'll, I want to come back to, to that piece and, and get into it when we do the risk stratification. Sure. Um, but just real quick, still related to the physical exam, if you have a patient that um, where the chest pain is reproducible when you, you know, rub on their chest, is that, does that 
allow you to rule out um, you know one of these more serious causes of chest pain and indicate that it's you know, costochondritis or um, does that give you any any way to to label them low risk or non-cardiac yeah jake i'm i'm, I'm so glad you brought that up um, the the short answer is yes uh, the, the 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 longer answer is um, if you can reproduce somebody's symptoms you know press on them have them do certain maneuvers lift their arm resistance maneuvers and you are absolutely re reproducing the symptoms that they came in for that is their diagnosis now sometimes you know you've got to be you've got to be uh, aware of, of 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 and 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 in tune with the patient and and patients aren't always very good at describing their symptoms and sometimes people have two pains that occasionally happens sometimes they have three pains and and uh, and you've really got to go through the history carefully um so if i have a 20 30 40 year old who comes in and i can reproduce their symptoms and i can move their arm or press on their chest they have costochondritis or some musculoskeletal inflammatory issue and that's it we're done um if i've got a 70 or 80 year old with multiple risk factors and they've got arthritis and i could reproduce their pain uh, i still need to be um, a little bit more thorough in my evaluation in making sure that uh, that I'm potentially not missing something. Uh, but yes, uh, that that's a very helpful piece of information. So can chest pain present differently in male versus female? Uh, it, it, there is there is uh, that this is true. Now, the most common presentation, whether you are a woman or a man, is still chest pain. That, that's that. But women are more likely to present with atypical symptoms and those atypical symptoms may be nausea, uh, maybe uh, reflux type symptoms, fatigue, uh, difficulty sleeping. Um, so you just have to be aware that people can present sometimes with um, atypical symptoms uh, and women more likely than men. But chest pain is still the number one present presenting symptom. And that chest pain presenting symptom is most typically, if we're talking about myocardial infarction or an acute coronary syndrome, pressure-like, squeezing-like tightness, as opposed to quick, sharp pains. We see a lot of that as well. You know, again, people aren't taught how to differentiate their chest pain from in school. That would be a wonderful lesson one day. Here's how you know whether <laughs> you're right. having a heart attack or not. And we would probably reduce a lot of presentations to the ER. But there are lots of people who have these vague sort of, I had a quick, sharp pain and it happened a couple of times and it happens once a week and, and I'm sitting around and it happens and it worries me. These are not life-threatening causes of chest pain. Um, and, and uh, you know, the, that, that is something that uh, we frequently see as a presentation. So let's dive into the high sensitivity troponin test. Um, are, is every patient that comes through the emergency department with chest pain, whether you feel it's cardiac or non, going to get one of these tests? Probably they will. Do they need one? The answer is no. Um, but I suspect that anybody who comes into the emergency room as soon as they fall into the chest pain protocol, they get an automatic high sensitive troponin. Um, but 
That's probably uh, part of the way that our protocol is. Not every physician could get to the patient right away and examine them and, 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 and uh, make an immediate diagnosis without the need of a high sensitive proponent in the ER. For instance, if you walk into my office, I don't have the luxury of getting a high sensitive troponin, but I can examine you, talk to you, and I can make a diagnosis that there's no acute coronary syndrome and no serious issue based on my exam and, 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 uh, and, and the history that I take. In the ER, we have to move things a little bit quicker, and we don't have that ability to uh, examine everyone and talk to everyone before we get the, the important blood tests and, and EKGs and so forth. So more than likely in the emergency room, yes, we will. And so, you know, I wanted the, the, the audience to know a little bit about, you know, this high-sensitive troponin and, 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 you know, what are we exactly looking at? So, you know, there, there are basically three types of cardiac troponin. There's cardiac troponin C, which is in skeletal and myocardial muscle. And we don't use that one because it's in both, both types of muscle. Then there's uh, uh, cardiac troponin I and cardiac troponin T. Um, these are contractile components present in the myocardium and exclusive to cardiac muscles. They work in coordination with calcium ions to promote binding of actin and myosin, thus leading to cardiac muscle contraction. Cardiac troponin has, as I mentioned, troponin T, which is a protein molecule attaching troponin complex to actin. There's troponin C, which is the calcium binding site, as I mentioned, found in both skeletal and myocardial muscle. And then there's troponin I, which inhibits myosin head interaction in the absence of calcium. Um, it's important to also understand that uh, the concept of early releasable troponin pool, ERTP, so almost 95% of troponin is bound to actin filaments, while about 5% of it is free in the cytoplasm. And that constitutes that ERTP, that the, the early releasable troponin pool. The troponin in the ERTP is usually the first to be released following myocardial injury. With normal renal function, it gets cleared immediately from the blood pool. The structurally bound troponin, it's released over a period of several days, and it causes a gradual rise in troponin. But the troponin T and the troponin I are specific and sensitive, and these are the cardiac-specific troponins. So where does this high-sensitive troponin assay come in? You know, the, the, the high-sensitive troponin assay um, uh, is a more precise assay, and it's defined by something called the coefficient of variation. It's a ratio of standard deviation to the mean value of a series of troponin samples. So generally, um, a high-sensitive assay are approved if their coefficient of variation is less than 10% of the 99th percentile, all right? And this is uh, an important concept. Um, the high-sensitive troponin assay should be able to detect very low concentrations of troponins and should have high sensitivity and precision. And that's why if we look at the general population, about 50% of people will have some elevations in this high-sensitive troponin because it picks up that ERTP pool that I mentioned. That's what makes it really good. You know, it, it'll pick up um, levels, but it will, it will, pick up earlier rises and injury much quicker than the standard, uh, the previous standard. Um, and this particular new high sensitive troponin assay is an improvement over the fourth generation of uh, troponin assays 
Um, it's produced by one company, Roche. Um, there's many standardized protocols for it. Um, it's generally a slightly higher uh, value. Men usually slightly have a higher value than women. Uh, people who are over the age of 60 have a slightly higher value. Um, and um, it, uh, it, it is elevated quicker than the old one. So you can begin to see elevations in the blood within um, really within uh, an hour of, of the onset of uh, myocardial damage, as opposed to in the previous one, we couldn't definitively say that we had ruled out myocardial injury until six hours after the onset of chest pain. That's why we have these new high sensitive troponin uh, protocols now where we have a zero check, we have a 90 minute check, and if necessary, we could check it again in three hours. If you have someone who has had chest pain for up to 20 minutes, even 10 minutes is, is enough because of the sensitivity of this study, 10 minutes to 20 minutes, more than three hours before the presentation to the emergency room, and your high sensitive troponin is zero or less than the, uh, the, the cutoff that we have in our particular um, analyzers, then that individual is not having and has not had an acute coronary syndrome. And, and we could get into the protocol in just a moment. Yeah, I would like to get into the protocol, at least, you know, not maybe not into the the nitty gritty, but uh, the large, the maybe the three big categories that we have. Um, but so just in general, compared to the old test that we used to use, this high sensitivity test is obviously more sensitive. So you would expect to see more more patients with elevated troponin um, through the emergency department. But that doesn't necessarily mean that all those patients are having an acute coronary syndrome. Is that correct? That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. So again, for everyone who checks these troponins, it's important to know that about 50% of the population has some level of troponin that's going to be picked up all the time by this high sensitive troponin. Um, and so if you look at the, the, um, the um, uh, algorithm, and, and there's a different algorithm. Unfortunately, we have three different algorithms in the Baptist system, and that's because we've got different analyzers at some of these different systems. The, um, the assay, the Roche assay is the same at each of these, but the analyzers are different, which is why we have slightly different numbers. But if we take Baptist Memphis, Baptist DeSoto, GTR, North Mississippi, NEA Union County, um, the baseline for a woman is less than and equal to 53 nanograms per liter. And for a man, it's less than and equal to 78 nanograms per liter. Um, so, so that means if somebody came in, like you said, with chest pain, that was over three hours ago, and that baseline was, and, and their troponin level was less than those baselines, you could safely rule out myocardial injury? That's correct. Okay. That's correct. That's correct. And if so, uh, so, and if you wanted to, and, and, and because these aren't 100% accurate, right, they're, they're, they're highly accurate, but not 100% accurate. So if somebody comes in, like you said, that patient, um, more than three hours after their chest pain, they lasted for 20 minutes or longer, 
um, and they fell into that category that um, was within normal range, you may want to consider doing a heart score. And if their heart score is zero to three, they're appropriate for discharge. All right, they're, they're good. If their heart score is greater than seven, suggesting that they might be someone who um, whose next level may may still go up. Um, you can keep them for an additional test uh, and have a shared decision making conversation with the patient about the options. Um, if the heart score is between four and six, repeat the test in 90 minutes. If there is no change or less than three nanogram per liter delta, then there's no active ongoing ischemia. There's been no injury. The patient can be discharged. If the delta is greater than or equal than three, then there's a suggestion that something may actually be going on and you may want to keep that individual. Um, the other thing to note is understanding the delta. There's there's a, a there's a, a absolute change, which are the uh, the um, changes in nanogram per liter that are uh, embedded within our algorithm. And then there's also a relative uh, change, which would be greater than, you know, 20% change from the baseline. If you see a greater than 20% change of the baseline, it also may prompt you to consider that there may be something going on. For instance, if somebody comes in with chest pain and they have a normal, uh, what's considered within the normal range, high sensitive troponin, and let's say it's 10 for a man, which is substantially below the cutoff of normal, but it rises to 20 on your next one. That individual you may want to keep around for an additional test and, 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 and roll out further because it's suggesting to you that something is changing, even though they're within the normal range. So two comments. Um, one, because like you said, you're going to see more elevated troponins in the general population because this is a more sensitive test that one of the important things is the delta, the difference between the, the second troponin test and the first to tell you if there's been myocardial injury. That's what I understood from what you just mentioned. And then two is using the heart score to stratify um, high risk and low risk patients. And can you comment just a little bit on, on what the heart score is for those that might not be used to, to calculating it? Sure, sure. There, there, there are, um, there are many um, risk stratifying scores that are um, used around the world. Um, uh, and there are several that are validated. The one that we uh, chose to um, uh, adopt and, and utilize in our system is, is called the heart score. Um, it's basically a, a mnemonic that stands for um, history, for the H, E is ECG, A is age, R are risk factors, and T is troponin. Each of these are um, allotted a, a number and a score. Um, so for history, um, you get a score ranging between zero to two um, with highly suspicious presentation, moderately suspicious presentation, or slightly or non-suspicious presentation, which is a zero. Moderately is one, highly is two. Um, and you apply that. So somebody comes in and, 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 and uh, you know, they're 40, 40 years old and they have 
uh, one second sharp pains occurring every couple of hours, that's a zero. Um, somebody who is 65 with known history of coronary disease or has multiple risk factors, um, uh, or let's say they don't have any risk factors, but their story is a gradual increase over a period of time, increasing escalating pressure, originally starting with uh, exertion and now occurring at rest and lasting for minutes and perhaps even longer, that's highly suspicious. And anything in between is moderately. EKG, um, you, you uh, uh, apply a, a high score two if there's significant SD depression, one if there's some abnormality in the EKG, completely normal EKG is zero. Age greater than and equal to 65 years old gets a two, greater than 45 to 65 gets a one, less than 45 gets a zero. Again, what you're seeing here is zero, you know, these low risk young people get zero, zero, zero risk factors, no known risk factors, zero, one or two risk factors, one, greater than three risk factors or history of CAD is a two. Risk factors, as we know, are diabetes, hypertension, uh, lipids, smoking, early family history. Family history is important. Oftentimes people don't know what that is. Family history is specifically direct relatives, mother, father, brother, sister. If your mother, father had a, I'm sorry, father, brother had a heart attack, stroke, 45 or younger, that's family history. Mother, sister, 55 or younger, that's family history. If you've got a mother or father who had a heart attack or stroke at age 70, that's not family history. Uh, T, troponin, uh, greater than and equal to three times the normal limit is two. Between one and three times the normal limit is one, less, as, uh, less than the normal limit is zero. And you add up your score, all right? And if you've got a zero to three, that's a low score. Basically, what that means is that the likelihood that you're going to have a major adverse cardiovascular event over the next uh, six weeks is extremely low, less than 2%. You could discharge that person home, and they probably don't need follow-up. Um, but, you know, to be on the safe side, you may suggest that they see their primary care physician, or if there's something within that heart score that concerns you, you may suggest that they see the cardiologist. Uh, four to six is a medium score. Um, that's the patient that falls into our intermediate risk category that we may want to admit for additional risk stratifying testing, which we'll get into in a second. And then you've got your high risk, and those people are either coming in with a STEMI or they've got something that warrants that they should go for an early invasive strategy such, an, such as a coronary arteriogram. Um, and their risk the reason that they're high risk is their risk of having a major adverse cardiovascular event, that's heart attack or death, is 50 to 70% in the next six weeks. And that's extremely high. That's a, that's a high risk group that you've got to definitively evaluate before you send them home. Mm. And again, we're talking about here chest pain presentations that are specifically acute coronary syndromes. Let's remember there are all those other categories of chest pains that, you know, are follow a completely different pathway, completely different protocol, right? You've got your PE rule out, and then the protocol you've got to follow depending on how you present with that PE. Is it a saddle embolism? Do they have right ventricular strain? Are they hemodynamically unstable? And do we need to take them immediately to the invasive lab for lytic therapy? You've got your acute type aortic dissection. You know, every uh, hour that goes by, uh, 
there's a 10% uh, increase in mortality with type A aortic dissection. So that's another diagnosis that needs to be made immediately, immediate consultation, stat consult from the uh, cardiothoracic surgeon and immediately taken to the uh, operating room. You've got your um, uh, pneumothorax, you know, that's a different pathway. Pneumonia, different pathway. Um, uh, esophageal rupture, different pathway. So all of these things um, need to be ruled out immediately. Um, but we're focusing on um, myocardial infarction, but all the providers that are listening need to remember there are other causes of chest pain, and those must be given equal um, weight, uh, uh, just as much as we do with our myocardial infarctions. The death can be just as 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 uh, uh, serious and 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 likely if we miss those. That's very important. And and before we leave the high sensitivity troponin algorithm, um, you know, we talked about if it's really really low, you know, what do we do? Uh, what about if it's above? You know, is there a certain threshold in which you would say, yep, definitely um, myocardial infarction. Uh, we don't need to you know, do a repeat test or anything like that, we can just, uh, this patient has one. Is there a, a level for these tests that would signify that? Yeah, so um, uh, uh, a, a, a score of uh, greater than 120 nanograms per liter is considered a positive test. But let's also remember this. This is also a very important thing. There are a lot of non-cardiac causes of elevated troponin that we also need to consider that can that can raise your high sensitive troponin level uh, to those that are considered rule-ins for myocardial infarction. So person comes in, EKG is performed, they have ST elevation MI, no brainer, we go right to the cath lab, Make as long as they're not um, dying of some other reason, medically futile, and I won't get into all those components. Then you've got your subset of patients that come in. They have EKG changes that are concerning. Story sounds quite typical, um, but we need something to definitively um, diagnose the, the, the issue. And, and we get that troponin back. It's greater than and equal to 120 active ongoing chest pain. That individual is experiencing a non-ST elevation myocardial infarction. And if their TIMI risk score is greater than is equal to four or greater, they should go for an early invasive strategy within 24 hours. Um, in the world of COVID, things have been a little bit complicated, and I won't get into that either. But that subset needs to go relatively early. TIMI score less than four still should have an invasive approach meaning they should undergo cardiac catheterization, but the timing may be a little bit different. And whoever is evaluating them is looking at other um, high-risk things like, are they in heart failure? Are they having uh, or exhibiting arrhythmias that are concerning, block, ventricular arrhythmias? Is there some indication that we need to take this individual to the cath lab immediately? Then you've got your subset of patients, you know, and those are, you know, those are your non-ST elevation myocardial infarctions. Then you've got your subset of patients, they come in, their troponins are elevated, but you know they may be septic, they may have a pulmonary embolism. Their hematocrit, uh, the hemoglobin hematocrit may be seven and 20. 
you know, their indications for troponin elevation are major stress, um, damage to the to the myocardium, not because there's an acute thrombus, but probably because this individual has some functional coronary disease, you know, has some coronary disease, maybe it's 50%, 60% at most, but when their myocardium is stressed, um, uh, for instance, uh, as seen in somebody who, who's, who's uh, 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 severely acutely anemic, um, they're going to have a rise in their troponin because now they've got functional severe ischemia. So it's also important to note that a high-sensitive troponin doesn't just tell you that there's an acute myocardial infarction. It also should, uh, you know, the provider should always think about other possibilities and other potential causes of elevated troponin and treat them appropriately. Uh, the question later is, well, now that this person's had this really high sensitive troponin in the setting of some other acute event, what do we do later? And oftentimes we shouldn't do an invasive approach during the hospitalization because that individual would not have had that troponin bump had they not been, had they not presented with that severe acute illness. And so typically you should allow that individual to recover from that problem, see them in the office weeks later, and consider at that time additional risk stratification with a stress test, or depending on the history, um, uh, you may have a, a shared decision-making um, conversation with the, with the patient and the family about what the next steps would be. Um, in terms of and this is probably the biggest and the, the, the most complicated uh, 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 patient who presents with a, an acute coronary syndrome is the one that falls in the middle. You know, your intermediate risk individual. They're not low risk. They're not the high risk that need to go to the coronary angiography. These are the patients who have um, a heart score between four and six. That means that... Um, the likelihood that they can have a major adverse cardiovascular event within the next six weeks is 10 to 30 percent. And they have um, high sensitive troponins that aren't um, severely elevated, um, but there's some changes and subtleties that concern you. Um, the decision then is what's the next step? You know, how do we approach these patients? Um, each of our facilities has um, various risk stratifying tests, and those range from exercise treadmill tests to stress echocardiograms to exercise nuclear perfusion studies, specifically using technetium-99, LexiScan or pharmacologic stress tests, dobutamine nuclear stress tests, and dobutamine stress echoes, and we also have coronary CTA now. I'll briefly talk about coronary CTA. Coronary CTAs are great tests for your intermediate risk patients who are generally less than 65 years old and have no known coronary artery disease. Good test for them, if you can get it rapidly. Our, our limitations sometimes with these coronary CTs is that we can't get them rapidly. The other issues that you want to know about these coronary CT, uh, uh, the, other, the other components that are important when you're making your decision is um, 
uh, how big is the person? You know, if their BMI is very large, probably not a good test. Um, uh, are they in normal sinus rhythm? Are you able to effectively beta block them and get their heart rate down to less than 60? You know, that's a real key component. And do they have uh, kidney injury? So, so those are, unfortunately, a lot of our patients, they come in with kidney injury. So those are the things to look at. So your ideal patient, 50 years old, diabetic, hypertensive, smoker, kidneys are great. Their blood pressure is high enough that I could beta block the heck out of them. Um, and their, uh, you know, their BMI is maybe 30. Great rule out test. All right. And if they end up having an inconclusive study or questionable uh, coronary disease ranging anywhere between 40 percent and 70 percent, they may need what's called fractional flow uh, uh, reserve to see if they have um, a, a, a significant uh, hemodynamically significant uh, uh, obstruction that may then lead to uh, uh, cardiac catheterization. If they have a definitive severe obstruction on their coronary CTA, then you know, take them to the cath lab. The other subset of patients are your, you know, maybe a little bit more uh, complicated. They're obese. Uh, they may be better off with uh, stress testing. Um, Preferably, if you can get it, a dobutamine stress echo with, uh, with uh, 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 contrast imaging is great for your morbidly obese patients um, who are not in atrial fibrillation um, and uh, also for your active COPD patients. If you have a young individual who can walk, that, so the first question always, let me backtrack, I'm probably all over the place here, but first question is, patient, uh, you're making a decision, can they walk? They can walk and they can walk a good amount, do a treadmill test all the time. We do too many pharmacologic studies. There's so much to derive from a person's ability to do a Bruce protocol. If they can walk nine minutes or more, you will, it's a pretty good test telling you that this person doesn't have obstructive coronary disease. Um, if they can walk nine minutes or more and you can get their heart rate up and they have no chest pain, that's another really good definitive uh, clue that you're not dealing with obstructive CAD and you've got somebody in pretty good shape. And then, yeah, so, so if they can walk, their EKG is normal, um, just do a regular treadmill test. If they have diabetes, maybe they have known coronary disease, but it's not obstructive, do the stress echo. Um, if they, and, 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 and think about, you know, doing the stress echo because you're minimizing radiation too. You don't want to radiate all these young people. They're, they're going to have their fair share of radiation throughout their lifetime. And then the older folks um, who can't walk or individuals that are obese who can't walk or they have some other orthopedic limitations or they have a left bundle branch block or a pacemaker or have uh, an irregular heart rhythm, then in that instance, pharmacologic testing like LexiScan nuclear perfusion stress testing is the more appropriate study. And I can get into the details of that. Now, we are about to put out um, a stress testing protocol um, at, uh, uh, in DeSoto, in Memphis, and in Oxford, um, and we'll probably uh, develop a similar stress testing protocol for the other facilities as well. And this, these protocols are meant to help guide the hospitalist and other providers on choosing the appropriate stress test for this intermediate group uh, population.
That's great. I look forward to that. I do want to back up to the Timmy risk score and how it differs from the heart score. Sure, sure. So um, the heart score is a test that we utilize in the emergency room to help us decide whether or not we need to admit this patient or send this patient home. You know, that that's the value of that heart score. And it's been validated. Um, and um, as mentioned, if you have a score of four or greater, then and you know, a four or greater in an individual who you've deemed may possibly have an acute coronary syndrome. What I often find is that the heart scores are applied to people who we know don't have cardiac cause of chest pain. Do not apply to that. It's that patient that, that Jake mentioned earlier, you know, young person, I press on their chest or I move their arm, we're reproducing their pain. Don't put them through a heart score. They have no cardiac problem. Send them home. So use the heart score when you're suspicious that you're dealing with an acute coronary syndrome. And if it's four or greater, that patient needs to be admitted to the appropriate next level of diagnostic testing or risk stratification. When that patient is admitted, and if that patient is deemed to have a possible unstable coronary syndrome or non-ST elevation myocardial infarction, that's where the TIMI score is applied. The TIMI score has also been validated and um, is a risk score that helps the um, uh, interventionalist or the non-invasive cardiologist, whoever is evaluating the patient, determine, A, how quickly do we need to take this patient to the cath lab? And if their TIMI risk score is high, they're high risk and we need to go rather rapidly. Um, and also, if they're on the lower end of TIMI risk score, is this something that someone that we may potentially be able to uh, manage medically. Um, it's been very helpful in, in, in the COVID era to utilize this risk score in terms of determining which individuals can we keep in their COVID um, quarantined uh, area on appropriate anti-ischemic therapy, heparin, aspirin, whatever it is that we need to keep them stable and wait to do their invasive procedure as opposed to those who have higher to me scores. Um, but that's that's how I would approach the those two scores. Okay, so, you know, I think this has been really helpful. We covered a lot of ground. Um, I, I wanted to attempt to recap um, with you correcting me um, before we wrap up the show. But so we get a patient that comes in through the emergency department with chest pain. We do the appropriate history and physical and get the EKG. Uh, if the EKG shows a STEMI, obviously you're going to take them to the cath lab, but if it doesn't, um, then we'll do the, the high sensitivity troponin tests as well as the, the heart score. And if the patient is, you know, below the baseline, low heart score, that patient unlikely to have um, myocardial injury and, and can go home. If it's that high sensitivity test is very high, um, then they would need to be admitted for further uh, workup of their chest pain. And if it's in the middle, then that's when you kind of do that delta test with the 90 minutes, as well as assess with that heart score. And if they're you know, greater than four, then you would need to do further workup. And then for those patients, 
You also do the ones that you decide they're not safe to go home. You would also do a, a Timmy score at that point. Is that what I'm hearing to decide if they needed earlier um, intervention? Correct. Correct. The Timmy score is helpful in, in, in helping us determine um, which patient we should take to the uh, angiogram yeah. suite immediately and, and those who may not need to be taken immediately. Okay. Um, but then oh. if we, if you, if you had, I guess, a, a low Timmy score, you didn't need to take them immediately, then you would decide on, um, you know, further workup with either an exercise stress test, if they're able to walk, um, or if they're not, then you could evaluate with the other tests we, we discussed as far as the uh, stress echo, um, nuclear stress, and then CT angiogram, depending on the patient criteria. Did I, am I missing anything? No, I, I think that's all. That, that's it. That's that's all. Um, I think you got it there, Jake. Uh, and the other thing that, that that also, you know, I just wanted to add the timing and the onset of the chest pain. Um, and, and this is where that high sensitive troponin is very helpful. So, again, patient presents greater than three hours, 20 minutes of their pain. High sensitive troponins are negative. You're, that's it. Highly unlikely that we're dealing with an acute coronary syndrome. If they come in less than three hours of the onset of chest pain and you get that initial high sensitive troponin and it's not elevated, then it's helpful then to repeat the test within, you know, always think about the timing. So if you're a provider and patient comes in within one hour of their pain, you should be thinking, I need to get at least another one in two hours or more. If they come in within two hours of their pain, then you know if I get one in 90 minutes, I'm well outside that window. If it's going to be elevated, if there's a problem, it will be elevated in that 90-minute study. So, so that's you know, think about that three-hour time piece and think about the length of the chest pain that they've been experiencing. If somebody's experiencing 10 minutes, five minutes of pain, and it seems to be stuttering. The high sensitive troponin is definitely helpful to you if it's positive. Not so helpful if it's if it's um, and when I mean positive, I mean above the, the, the normal limit. So, you know, you're above your you're greater than your 120 nanograms per liter. But if you're somewhere in in the range where it's considered normal, um, you may need to admit that person for some additional testing. And that's a really great point. Um, you know, and I'm definitely going to include a link to the algorithm as well as the, the ACC guidelines and the heart score in the show notes, just for reference to our, our viewers or listeners, not viewers. Um, but is, any other last comments before we wrap up the, the program? Um, I, I think that uh, don't forget that non cardiac is in and atypical is out, all right? And uh, if you're low risk, um, you're low risk. There's no indication to perform all sorts of testing um, unless it's some other cause of chest pain. Um, as providers in the hospital, our goal is to make sure that the individual that's presenting with chest pain does not have a problem that's life-threatening. We cannot diagnose the cause 
of every chest pain. That is not our role in the hospital. And I try to explain that to people all the time. We're here, we wanna make sure that you're not walking out with a life-threatening issue. The rest of your 50 different potential causes of chest pain, we will figure out as an outpatient. And so I think those are some of the important things. And, and it's also, you know, in, in the office, your approach to chest pain is a little bit different than it is in the hospital. Um, and, and, you know, I know a lot of the providers live both sides. And, and um, um, but uh, I, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to talk about this because um, I think it's, it's a confusing topic sometimes. And, um, and uh, it's constantly evolving. Um, and unfortunately, we have different uh, tests that, that we can offer at our different facilities and it would be nice to be able to standardize it across the system so that we're all following the same uh, the same uh, process. But uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Maybe you could come back and talk about, you know, chest pain in the in the clinic setting. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd be more than happy to. Yeah, I think that'd be very helpful. Um, but I, I definitely learned a lot today. Um, you know, certainly nice to have these algorithms that, that can help guide you. Um, so you know where your patient is. But thank you, everybody, for listening to Right Care at Baptist. You can find the links in the show notes uh, to redeem this episode for CME credit.